Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through. Keeping their delicate skin healthy and happy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick and goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable. When my oldest was little, she would get the worst diaper rash. It left me feeling so desperate to help her while also wanting something gentle on her skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor. When she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash, she let nothing get in her way. You can use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel confident that you are making the right choice. Dr. Mom is committed to providing an ultra-premium formula for moms that won't settle when it comes to their little ones. Soothe and restore with active ingredients being dimethicone and petrolatum. You can find more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com or find it on Amazon or walmart.com. Hello and welcome to the VBAC link. This is Megan and we have our friend Nicole with you today. She is from Canada and she has a VBAC story, which is awesome. And I, so one of the things I want to talk about today within her VBAC story and actually her cesarean story is induction. Induction is a hot topic, I feel like, especially in the VBAC world. A lot of people, providers out there will not induce VBAC or they'll tell people that they can't have a VBAC because of induction. Um, needing to take place, or people are actually scared of induction. I find a lot of our followers are scared of induction. And so at the end, I want to talk a little bit more about induction. So we're going to get into the review so our cute Nicole can share her amazing stories. And today's review is, let's see if I can get this to pull up. My computer's being slow here, is by Ruka the Silly Frenchie. I love that. I love that name. Ruka the Silly Frenchie. And the title is An Essential Resource If You're VBAC Hopeful. It says, writing this review from Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio. VBAC Hopeful with my second daughter due on September 4th, 2021. So Ruka the Silly Frenchie, if you were still listening, let us know how things went. It says, after my first daughter that was born via cesarean due to a footling breach position, I knew Tolak was in my future. This podcast has been beyond educational and inspiring. Be prepared to be addicted listening to all the powerful and unique birth stories from strong women around the country. Regardless of what happens with my upcoming labor, I feel empowered knowing I took a more proactive and educated approach with this pregnancy. Thank you, Julie and Megan. Well, thank you, Ruka, the silly Frenchie, for your review. And I would love to know how everything went. If you guys have not had a chance to leave a review, please drop us one. We love them and we love reading them on this podcast. You can really leave them wherever you listen to your podcast. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. 
Here is your host, Megan. Hi, birth workers. This one's for you. In an ideal world, VBAC parents would be treated just like any other birthing parents. In today's world, most medical providers sadly don't fully support VBAC parents. However, 90% of parents with a prior cesarean are good candidates to attempt a VBAC. This is why we have created the Advanced VBAC Doula Certification Program. In this doula course, we share evidence-based data for you to educate your clients, teach you the tools on helping them how to process past fears and trauma, or helping them decide if VBAC is even right for them. You will feel better prepared to support them during this beautiful experience. All VBAC certified doulas are listed on our website so parents know who you are. To learn more, go to the VBAClink.com. Okay. Nicole, I am so excited. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I know that all of you guys who have recorded your stories, you're sacrificing time out of your day to be here to share this amazing content for all of these wonderful, hopeful listeners. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, And I'll jump back to before my cesarean, but this podcast was such a resource for me um, in planning for my feedback. Um, so I'm happy to be a part of it kind of in a different way. So thanks for having me. Yes, thank you. So I'll kind of start from the very beginning. So me and my husband were high school sweethearts. We got married in 2015. And so about after a year um, after we got married, we decided, okay, we're ready to start trying to have a family. So I stopped taking um, my birth control pill and literally like nothing happened. Um, I didn't have any, I wasn't having any cycles or anything like that. So I went to my family doctor, we started inducing cycles and then going from there kind of just on our own. And then it turns out that notwithstanding the fact that we were inducing um, a bleed, I wasn't actually ovulating at all. Um, so that's fine. So then we started doing um, a couple of rounds of letrozole with her, just with timed intercourse. Um, so we did five rounds of letrozole with uh, that timing with her and just with no luck or success. So at that point, she referred us out to a fertility clinic where I was diagnosed with like classic PCOS and ovulatory PCOS, I think they call it, because I don't ovulate on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did our first IUI with them. Again, no success with letrozole. So that's fine. We had another one scheduled. Um, kind of after doing all of that, I had stopped responding to the letrozole at the highest dose. So then our only option was either um, super ovulation or IVF. And it just worked out timing wise to do IVF and it made more sense to do that. So we ended up going through IVF and because I had PCOS, like our numbers in terms of like eggs that we got were really, really good. I think we got um, like 41 eggs, which is like insane. Wow. Yeah. Um, So when it was all said and done, we ended up with 10 day five embryos, which was really like promising. So that was good. So we had our first transfer in a frozen transfer in August of 2018, and it was successful. So we were super excited, had a really good pregnancy. Like I never felt sick. I was, aside from like the first trimester, like tired and exhaustion, felt really, really good. I loved being pregnant. Um, I'm one of those like annoying people that just never had it 
Like I never had a complaint about being pregnant. I felt super good. Even at 41 weeks, I was never like, oh, get this baby out of here. I loved it. It was great. And of course, we did all the things that you're supposed to do, like um, like taking the birth classes and Mm -hmm. all of those other things. Um, I never had a birth plan per se, but our birth plan or our goal was always just like healthy baby, healthy mom whatever that looks like and Mm -hmm. maybe in hindsight we should have had something more concrete but I'm not sure it would have changed anything Mm -hmm. so fast forward to I was 40 weeks plus 10 days so like 41 and a half weeks like maybe a centimeter dilated and like like this baby's just holding up shop (laughs) very comfortable yeah like too comfortable arguably um so they decided to induce me and I was totally fine with that so they induced me with cervidil Mm -hmm. so okay fine they put in the cervidil we stayed there for about at the hospital for about an hour or so and everything on the monitors looked fine so they sent us home and said come back um kind of like the classic when you have contractions for at least an hour at least lasting a minute um or whatever like the 411 whatever the 411 is or yeah, four minutes, four minutes apart, one minute long for at least an hour. Yes. And then I want to add in consi- like strength because sometimes we can be 411 and it's not really like strong. And so we maybe go a little too early because we're seeing 411. So t- yeah. it, it, add strength in there. If you're taking notes for when to go, add strength. Okay. So yeah, so then we left the hospital. It was fine. We like went out for lunch, kind of just hung out at home. One of the things they told us before we left the hospital was if it feels like baby's not moving or, you know, like your kind of mother's intuition t- kicks in, come back, we'll make sure everything's fine and then go go from there. So it was around supper time where I kind of started to feel like, okay, maybe baby's not moving as much as she usually does, or maybe I'm just being paranoid. But I said, well, let's just go in. Let's just double check just to be safe. Um, if anything, like I'm not going to sleep, get any sleep if I'm worried about her not moving. So I'd rather just go in and get checked. So we went in to get checked um, a little after supper. So in that early evening, like that's fine. They hooked us up to the monitors and everything looked okay. Like I wasn't really, I could feel the contractions, but I wasn't really in any pain. Like I wouldn't describe them as being painful yet. Yeah. And baby looked really good and everything. So they said, okay, well, you you can go home. Because I was still, I think, only like a centimeter or like maybe two being generous. So they said, yeah, go home on the same kind of instructions. So that's fine. We went home. A few hours went by at home. And now the contractions were like quite a bit stronger and like quite painful, actually. And so... I didn't want to rush off to the hospital again because I we had only just been there, I think like two or three hours before that. But the contractions were very painful and like very long. So I had one of those little contraction counters or whatever on your phone. And I wasn't sure if I was recording them correctly because like I was logging them at like two minutes. I was like, that doesn't sound right. That seems long. But I was just like, man, like I can't imagine spending the night at home with these feeling like this, like I need something for my pain. So I actually had my husband call the hospital. Say like, okay, this is kind of what's going on. 
if we come in, are you able just to give her some pain medicine and then like send her back home or send me back home if I'm not like dilated enough yet to, to warrant admitting us? And they said, well, maybe, but you were already here for lack of fetal movement. So we would be, we would have some hesitation about giving you something for it, like morphine or something, for example, um, because then you're really probably not going to be feeling the baby, but come in, we'll take a look at you and, and kind of go from there. So, okay, that's fine. So I think we ended up going back to the hospital maybe around midnight, shortly before then. It was quite late. And like, I could barely walk through these contractions. Like they were so painful in the back of my mind. I I couldn't imagine it getting any worse, but like, I've never done this before. I don't, I don't know. Maybe my tolerance for pain isn't as high as I thought it was or would like to think it is. And so that's fine. So we got back to labor and delivery. And right from the moment they hooked me back up onto the monitors in the triage room, you could just tell the vibe and the mood was completely different as soon as they looked at um, the strip. So my contractions were lasting anywhere from like two to like three minutes. But more than that is I was having like three, four, five of them in a row without any break in between. Mm which was then like really hard on baby because there's just like no downtime for baby to recover. Um, And so before one contraction would basically fully come down, the next one Another one would start. Wow. So they were worried that like the cervidil had essentially like hyper-stimulated my uterus. Yes. Yeah. So I was just going to say, and it it can do that. Cytotec and cervidil, it can hyper-stimulate. Yeah. And so the first thing they did was take the cervidil out and they said, okay, like, we're just going to give this a little bit and see if things calm down. They didn't. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Cause it's still, it's still in your body, but even cervidil, it's less likely to stay in your body long because it's removed. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's a nice thing about cervidil. Yeah. So they took it out. It it didn't change anything. Um, So then they gave me a dose of, I think it's called nitroglycerin. nitroglycerin. It's like a spray that I don't know if it comes in different forms but essentially it was described as what they can use again in, in an attempt to like just relax the uterus and kind of stop it from mm. contracting so like they sprayed it in in, in my vagina mouth. No, in, in your my mouth. mouth yeah I was like wow <laughs> <laughs> okay in your mouth okay I think they often also I think it's also used for um like cardiac patients because it has the same effect on a heart if someone's heart is if they're having it's too high or something yeah, don't quote me on that. I'm, I'm certainly not a medical professional, but that was my understanding. That, but um, anyway, so they gave me, I think, well, in the end of it, it ended up being like five doses of that. And again, this was just at this point, kind of like a train that had left the station and nothing was kind of working. And so throughout this process, they were having me change position. So I'm being asked to go on my side and my hands and knees. And I remember at one point, there was just kind of so much commotion and moving parts. And I'm still having these like super intense and painful contractions that they had asked me to move in some way. And I said, okay, I just need a minute. Like I just need to catch my breath. Like I just need a minute. And the nurse like very sternly, but kind of looked at me and said, like, we don't have a minute. Like when we ask you to do something like you have to do it right. When we ask because baby is not doing well. And that's kind of when, despite all the craziness, I kind of clued in and was like, okay, like this is obviously maybe more urgent than even I appreciate in the circumstance. So, uh, so it was kind of intense and hairy. And so they decided that 
even though I was only like two centimeters just to admit me because what are they going to do send me home so they admitted me they put me into a labor room because and until this point we had just been in a triage room and things kind of just kept going from bad to worse uh, at some point it was decided that they would break my water so that they could put in the little internal monitor into baby's head so they did that, um, had a few more doses of nitro. And throughout this whole process, I made it very clear, like, I'm pro-epidural. Like, as soon as you can give me one, I want one. And give me one right now. Um, and they said, okay, we hear you. But technically, like, you're not even three centimeters dilated yet. So you're not even considered to be an active labor. So we can't give you an epidural yet. I said, okay, <laughs> just so you know, I want one. This soon as you're willing to give it to me. And so I'm not sure how much time actually passed after I, they broke my water and put in the monitor until eventually the call was made that, okay, like it's time to get baby out. But I kind of just remember um, the OB who was on call coming up to me and just saying, and he was this like big intimidating man, but he had such a gentle and soft voice. He said, look, you know, baby's not doing very well. I think we need to go in and get her. Um, she's not tolerating labor. And it's it's really important that we get her out as soon as we can. And he's like, and unfortunately, that means we're going to put you to sleep. And I was kind of like, okay, like, that's fine. And as soon as I the words left my mouth, it was just like, whoosh. This entire team of people rushed in. Somebody was like in my face with a waiver that they were asking me to sign with. Which, like in the moment I get, but I'm just like, this is ridiculous. And then like someone else is taking off all my jewelry and my husband's being ushered out of the room. And it was just like madness. And we're running off to be down the hall to the operating room, which is uh, in our hospital, literally just down the hall. And so I'm on the table, they're doing all of their counts or whatever they do. And I'm lying there, obviously awake. And the anesthetist is sitting right by my head and he's complaining about how long everything's taking and how I should already be asleep and how we need to get the baby out, which is terrifying. And I remember he kept saying to me, just close your eyes, just close your eyes. But I've never had surgery before. So laying there in this like chaotic mess with someone just like telling me to close my eyes was just so unsettling. I just remember being so scared to close my eyes because my husband wasn't in the room with me. Um, they And I, they never let him in, right? Um, they let him in after our daughter was born. That's what I was just taking note of that, like, you know, being being separated. Like, how did that make you feel? And then being put to sleep. Uh, yeah, I, like, it was scary. I obviously wasn't worried about my husband. <laughs> um, I didn't, I did, I didn't think about in the moment, like how he must have felt. I'm sure it was scary for him, too. It just all happened so fast and there, there was hardly any time to feel anything other than fear because you did you almost didn't have enough time to process any other emotion mm -hmm. um but i just remember laying there and you're like strapped to the table naked having these 10 minute long contractions and it's I just, almost just like begging them at this point to put you out because it's so awful yeah. Um, but so my husband wasn't there. So thank God there was this one nurse. I don't even remember seeing her. I just remember her he hearing, hearing her, her. Kind of come from somewhere behind me. 
And I must have had this terrified look on my face because I have this anesthesiologist saying, just close your eyes, just close your eyes. And then she said, it's okay. Like you can keep them open. Like everything's fine. And I was like the only moment of relief or like calm I felt in that entire OR. And everyone I remember is doing their counts and somebody must have asked like, where are the sponges for whatever antiseptic or whatever they use on your belly? And the response from across the room was, no, we're just going to dump and cut. And I was like, oh. And then all of a sudden you feel, you feel this cold splash come across your, your midsection. <laughs> um, and so thankfully they put me out shortly after that. So when I could just stop listening to these conversations that were happening around me. Wow, yeah. Um, but it was very scary. But it turns out that so baby was born a couple minutes later, I think. When it was all said and done from... From the time the call was made that they needed to do the section to when she was born, it was less than 10 minutes. So in my mind, it feels like the, this eternity, but it was really, it wasn't. It was quite quick. And so they brought my husband into the OR just as they were walking our daughter over to the warmer. So he got to see her right away. She was totally fine. Everything was fine with her, which was nice. So he and her went up to the nursery kind of while they finished section and kind of stitching me back up so I woke up a few hours later and they brought um like my daughter and my husband over into the recovery to see me after and I had a really good recovery in terms of c-sections I don't ever once remember That's being great yeah it was really nice <laughs> I don't ever actually remember being in any pain after the fact um either in the hospital or at home but um but I did struggle in the weeks that followed, just like bonding with baby, which really kind of took me for a loop. We had spent so much time and like emotional energy and money trying to have our family and trying to have a baby. And here's this baby in front of me. And I just, it feels, it sounds awful to say now, but like to feel almost nothing, to feel indifferent. Like I didn't have this overwhelming sense of love and joy. I certainly didn't like want any harm or anything or have thoughts of harm that way but I just the easiest way for me to describe it is just like I felt indifferent I it didn't really matter if she was crying to me I didn't really care if she was there or if I got to hold her or if someone else held her all day I just it was just I was indifferent yeah I kind of call that like a, a disconnect like it you're just not fully connected it's not like you're not recognizing that she's there or anything it's just you're not feeling that like full connection that that we hear about, yeah. right? And but I, that's that's also really common when you've had the type of cesarean that you had, or just in cesarean in general too. And and it happens in vaginal birth, but it's very yeah. Common. And and I kind of I thought that was the case in the moment. Like I I I did think it kind of was because I had I really didn't have a birthing experience. Like in one moment I was pregnant, the next moment. As far as I'm concerned, I wake up and I'm not without anything really connecting the two. So that was kind of just a struggle emotionally uh, for those first couple of weeks, but it kind of resolved itself around seven or eight weeks. And then like, it's never been an issue. And I'm obviously obsessed with my daughter and I love her. And it's thinking back on those memories and feelings is hard. But once we, we got through it, it was good. And so that was the birth of our daughter <laughs> and so shortly after she turned one we, we started talking about having 
another child. We always knew we wanted more than one. I come from a family of three and my husband comes from a family of four. So we always thought that in an ideal world, you know, more than one would be great. And so we did another frozen transfer in August of 2020. Yeah, in August of 2020, which was successful. So that was really exciting again. And similar to my previous pregnancy again, felt really good, never sick, like loved being pregnant. And then I found this podcast and I listened to it religiously. I knew I I didn't want to have a scheduled or an elective section. I really wanted to be back. Um, and so that was the goal in terms of like, if I didn't have a birth plan the first time, birth plan, second time around was be back. And my family doctor said that she would deliver our baby. She, she wasn't delivering babies um, with our first, but she was back delivering them. And she said that even though, even if she wasn't on call um, on that day, that she would come just for us to do ours, which was really nice. Mm-hmm. And she was super supportive, like very much like if you need to be induced, like we can talk about that. Wasn't insistent that I go into labor on my own or by a certain date or whatever the case was. So she, I felt in in very much good hands with her. Yeah. So not putting those restrictions ever from the get go. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really nice. So such a weight off my shoulders kind of right from the beginning. Um, But it was kind of around that, that fall. So the fall of, let's say. 2020, I guess it was, that both personally and and many people around me noticed that my breathing was really poor. Mm. Um, And I, part of me just chalked it up to being extremely like out of shape as like a new mom. I kind of wasn't wasn't doing as much as I (laughs) could be. But it really hit me when I started noticing that when I I would read my daughter her books at her bedtime. I'm like, you know, toddler books, there's like five words on every page. Yeah. But I would have to stop between each page to catch my breath, just sitting at rest. So yeah. that's okay. that's concerning. Yeah. So we kind of thought, okay, maybe there's something more to this. So we went through a series of referrals and ended up in an ENT. And he said, This is this looks like something, but I, I'm not the one that can fix it for you. So he referred us on to um, a further specialist just in the next province over. And I was diagnosed with what's called a subclotic stenosis. And so it's just... Um, Never heard of that. The simplest form, it's like a, it's a narrowing of your airway. And it's not scar tissue from my understanding, um, but just like normal tissue, kind of like an overgrowth of normal tissue hmm. um, that causes this narrowing. Um it was likely caused from my intubation during from my your cesarean. Yeah. And just, there was just something about my airway that didn't like being touched and kind of this was the result. And so the specialist informed me that it was about a third of the size that it should be. Oh. Um, and that it would be dangerous to attempt to labor without having a surgery to open it back up. And so that was another hard decision, but we decided to go ahead and get that surgery while I was pregnant. So I got the surgery. It's called uh, like a dilation where they go and open it up with a laser and a balloon and all of this stuff. Um, So I had that surgery when I was 24 weeks and it was amazing how much better I could breathe. I didn't appreciate how bad my breathing was until they fixed it. And you don't realize how much 
of my day and my time I spent just thinking about breathing. So that was really nice. So then we were given the green light to TOLAC and kind of try for a VBAC. So rest of the pregnancy was uneventful. So I ended up going overdue again. So I was 40 weeks and seven days, well, I guess 41 weeks. And it was decided that at that point I would be induced because I was only a centimeter dilated and like no signs of labor. So fine. So this time, obviously, though, they said under no circumstances can we use Cervidil. Um, so we decided that we I would be induced with a Foley bulb. So we went to the hospital. They put in the Foley bulb that morning. They said, okay, come back when it falls out. Uh, so it fell out a couple hours later, like that afternoon. So we went back to the hospital. And I should add in that during my pregnancy, after like my dilation surgery, we had had an anesthesia consult just to make sure that, okay, what can we do to avoid another intubation? And it was kind of decided that when you come into the hospital, we'll give you an epidural probably earlier than maybe what it would usually be offered, just out of an abundance of caution to try and do everything we can to avoid intubating you. So that was fine. We got to the hospital. They started me on a low dose of Pitocin and contractions starting, started to look like they were getting longer again and not really following that nice pattern that they like to see. So our nurse started getting a little nervous and concerned, I think, and suggested that we call anesthesia to do the epidural, which like, sure, like I'm totally on board with. I was pro epidural from the very beginning with both of them. Like I, from my perspective, I didn't need to make my life or job harder than it already was. So anesthesia came in, gave me the epidural. It was great. I felt nothing. And then the contractions actually fell into a really nice pattern after. So then like no one was worried. So we hung out for two or three hours at the hospital again, like contracting, but like I had no idea, never felt anything. At one point I kind of said to my husband, like, oh, it feels, feels like I kind of peed a little bit. <laughs> He's like, well, you have a catheter. And I was like, yeah, but like I feel wet. And so it turns out my water broke on its own, which was nice, um, but I didn't have any urge to push or anything like that. So they said, we'll let you just hang out for a couple hours and just let us know if you ever feel that urge. So that urge never came. And so two hours later, they said, well, let's let's start pushing anyways, because it's it's been a little bit since your water broke. And I said, okay. So we pushed for about an hour and a half. And then at that point again, baby kind of started having some D cells and it, it kind of looked like baby was starting to not tolerate labor that well. Mm. So slowly the vibe became a little more tense and the message started to be, okay, it's time to get this baby out. We have to push this baby out sooner than later. Um, and so at some point the call was made to use the vacuum to help that happen just, mm. just sooner. And that was all explained to us and we said, okay, sure. So the vacuum was used and then the baby came out two pushes later. When my son was born, I didn't get to hold him right away. He wasn't crying. They took him over to the warmer right away. Excuse me, the warmer right away. And he kind of just had no tone. Like his body was completely limp. He wasn't crying. He was breathing, but only barely and kind of like 
had the, like the flared nostrils and all those telltale signs that he was working really, really hard. Attraction and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they had him kind of on the bag and worked on him for about 15 minutes. And in that time, like I said, like he never cried. He never kind of perked up. Um, and so it was decided that he needed to go off to the NICU to, to get some extra attention there. Um, so my husband went with him to the NICU. I stayed behind. I ended up having a third degree tear that required some attention. So they took me up to the NICU um, kind of once I was all ready to go a couple hours later. And it turns out that he had um, a severe meconium aspiration. Um, and so he actually ended up spending four days on a ventilator mm. and was in the NICU for nine days. Um, was there any sign of meconium when your water broke? Not when my water broke. Um, right before, I think right before kind of the call was made to use the vacuum. Um, I do remember our doctor saying it looks like there's a lot of mech in there, um, but there was no mention of it when my water broke. So, so maybe during, during. Yeah. Labor. So I'm assuming it was sometime after that, but during, during the labor that, um, that uh-huh. it happened. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of a scary experience, but, um, but he's totally fine now. He's this happy, strong, healthy boy that, we describe him as being built to last because he like nothing phases him. Yeah. <laughs> but so my VBAC wasn't necessarily what I had envisioned. Um, but ultimately it was really successful. Um, and a better emotional experience, which is weird to describe it because then there's lots of emotions around having a child in the NICU, but I didn't have any issues bonding with him. I felt that kind of connection to care for him right away and if anything if nothing else i'm hoping that by having that v-back be, be it will help make my next what will hopefully be a v-back better mm-hmm. um, i'm actually currently expecting oh um, yeah. awesome congratulations thank you yeah so we're hoping third time's a charm yes um, yeah so i'm just shy of 31 weeks so we're due <gasps> april 1st Oh my, really soon. Well, actually, like, right when this episode airs, you'll either have a baby. April Fool's, because, like, this kid's probably going to be late, too. Yeah, you'll either have Um, a baby or be be just about having a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so fun. So my husband and I always joke that, like, getting the babies in and getting them out usually takes quite a bit of work. Um. But like baking them is where I thrive. Yeah. So we're hoping. So the plan again, even with everything that happened with my son, with the the recovery was quite difficult with him, just with the third degree tear. Um, we're going for another VBAC. Yeah. We're hopeful that, um, that, like I said, if anything, my sons will kind of just help pave the way for what will hopefully be a smoother, mm-hmm. less eventful uh, experience. Absolutely. And you are, you know, your chances are higher of that, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. that first vaginal birth, even if there's no previous cesarean, can be a little longer or have things like operative, um, you know, like forceps and vacuum and things like that. It just, it can happen. So hopefully, like you said, pave the way and 
a beautiful redemption. I mean, they're all but have been great, but like a mm-hmm. redemption birth of the two yeah. less less dra- less drama, maybe. Less drama, yeah. <laughs> less excitement. Like I just want like a nice run of the mill. <laughs> Yes, know, but um, yeah, so it'll be good. That's so so, so exciting. How we experienced it, it was. Yeah. Like, I, I wouldn't change. Um, yeah, like you're still happy with the outcomes. Yeah, and I'm still happy we had the V back, and like, said, yeah. everyone's healthy. Yeah, um, and ultimately, like that's always been our thing: is healthy baby, healthy mom, whatever that looks like. Yeah, we can deal with. Um, but hopefully, it looks like a V back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you'll have to let us know. Definitely let us know. Yeah, I will for sure. That is so awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about induction. I've been taking notes um, along the way of just things that you had said. And right before I get into induction, I want to, something that you had said during your first, something that they said to you is they're just going to dump and cut. Mm -hmm. And I heard that, I heard that. And and then it's like, then you're gone, you know, there's like, like some of those last words there, those long lasting words. I think it is so important to note to everybody out there listening, especially if you are a provider, that words matter, words matter. And even though you may not be thinking that something that you say that your patient is going to hold on to, it's possible that they will. And, you know, I don't think that you, you held on to jump and cut, but that that like I heard that I'm like that is a very scary thing like we're just going to dump and cut so mm-hmm. I want to just remind everybody please be be mindful of your words when you are are with someone especially in a vulnerable state but induction I want to talk about induction and I just want to kind of talk about what ACOG says and then about going over 40 weeks and and stuff like that because I want you to know I mean here we are Nicole's proof like Induction can happen and VBAC can happen. And induction can happen and VBAC can happen with no complications, right? But then sometimes it can, and we don't know why, and we can't always blame induction at all. But I don't want you to be scared of induction. Like, I don't want you to be so terrified of induction that it consumes you because I know that, I know that some of our listeners are in that space, especially because they had an induction that spiraled down and went cesarean, right? Um, So I want to talk about that. ACOG concludes that induction of labor between 41 and 7 and 42 and 7 weeks can be considered an induction of labor after 42 and 7 weeks and 42, um, sorry, to zero. So 41 weeks to 42 weeks, 42 weeks to 42 weeks and seven days, like six, seven days, is recommended given evidence of an increase you know, more morbidity and mortality. And so something has changed over time and that is the ARRIVE trial. And we have a blog about the ARRIVE trial and we have a blog about induction and we have a blog about going over 40 weeks. Since this has happened, we see a lot more people at 40 weeks, if they haven't had a baby yet, it's like providers are are rushing to get babies out. And I just kind of want to just let you know like, that doesn't have to happen, but if you choose to induce, that's okay too. And just like Nicole said in the beginning of her induction story, no, she didn't qualify for Cytotech or Cervidel because she, she's a Tolak, right? But she had a, a great a great induction with a Foley catheter or a Cook catheter, depending on where you're at. Everyone calls it different, but those 
are a really great alternative. And you do have to be dilated a little. Um, and sometimes they can give Pitocin a little bit and then give a Foley. But talk with your providers. I encourage you to, to talk with your providers. And I feel like her provider really said, okay, like, here's what we should do. And this is why, you know, and, and it worked out in Nicole's benefit. So I just, I want everyone to know induction doesn't have to be scary, right, Nicole? <laughs> right. I don't think kind of the spiraling in our, with our son would, had anything to do with the induction. I think it was just, it life. just happened. It yeah. And, well, life. and sometimes, sometimes we have babies that have a fast transition or during pushing and meconium is really common too. And so, yeah, like you can't, I know people who have ha don't go into spontaneous labor and have meconium. And I know people that have meconium aspiration with induction. It, it just happens. But I mean, I just, I felt like, you know, there's lots of people on here that's living proof that induction is possible. But Nicole mm -hmm. just said over here, like she's been induced and she had two very different circumstances with induction, right? So just take it slow, speak with your providers, go over all your options and remember that words matter. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Tell us about your experience at the vbacklink.com slash share. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julian Megan's bios, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.